Uh, Google uh, has a program called Ingram. Uh, it scans across, uh, at the moment, it's something like 2 billion books that have been published over the last 500 years, and it, it does word counts or, or searches on, on phrases. And the result is uh, you put a word in, and you get a graph over time of the frequency with which that word is used over history. When I put the word transgender into Google's engram, uh, there's no significant usage until about 1990. The word was only invented in 1965. Uh, but then after 1990, it kind of ticks up a little bit uh, into the early 2000s, and then the graph almost goes vertical. Uh, if you think uh, transgender ideas and issues seem to sort of suddenly burst on the scene out of nowhere, uh, you are not alone. Uh, it's a long time since I was in high school, but if one of my teenage classmates had said, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, uh, we'd have probably laughed or, or thought they were talking nonsense. But no high school student today would laugh at that statement. In fact, our society accepts that statement as meaningful and significant. Uh, to question it or challenge it, uh, that just reveals that really you're just stupid, you're immoral, or you've got some kind of bigotry going on inside of you. How do we get, within a few decades, from something almost unheard of, seemingly ridiculous, to something that is socially and politically accepted and assumed. A statement like, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, raises all sorts of questions. It raises questions about the connection between the mind and the body because it puts a priority on inner conviction over biological reality. Now, it raises questions about what it means to be a man or a woman, because it separates gender and biology. It raises questions about civil rights and individual freedoms, because it, it now challenges who can play what sports, or what words you need to use when you speak about someone else. It raises questions that are actually dividing our society. It's not just Christians who are grappling with these issues. Uh, yesterday's feminist heroes are finding themselves in conflict with today's gender uh, activists. Now, how are we as Christians going to respond to the issues that, are, that our culture is pressing in on us? How will we speak to uh, family members or friends when these topics come up? How will our teenagers who are facing these issues every day at school or on social media, how are they going to react and respond? Uh, more than that, how's the good news of Jesus good news for people with questions about sexuality and identity? Uh, through this series across four Sundays, I want us to think Christianly about social, sexual and political issues. Now, a few preliminaries. I am not an expert on social or sexual or political issues. I've done some reading and some watching and some listening and I'm, I'm trying to draw together all that wisdom that other people have accumulated and synthesize it and push it out into a little useful package for you. 
but I'm not an expert. Uh, again, I'm not giving a seminar on Sunday morning. I'm preaching a sermon. And so I'm trying to let God's word shape the way we respond to our cultural issues. Now, this sermon's going to sound different from other ones because we're thinking about a topic, but we still want God's word to shape our response. Uh, And thirdly, I'm not trying to answer all the objections and concerns of people out there, whoever they happen to be. We will touch on some of that, but I'm aiming to help us as a church, us as a community of Christian believers. Now, I've uh, grabbed your attention with the issue that's front and centre, transgenderism. That's the one we keep hearing about. That's the topic that, that seems to pop up every now and again. That's the provocative topic. Uh, But actually, like an iceberg, that's the issue that's sort of above the waterline. That's the stuff we can all see. But as C.S. Lewis said, the most dangerous ideas in a society are not the ones being argued, but the ones that are being assumed. That is, what are the ideas in our culture that are below the waterline of the iceberg, the things that are assumed, taken for granted, not even looked at. See, transgender is the buzzword of the last 10 years, but before that, the conversation was about homosexuality and being gay, but before that, there was the sexual revolution of the 1960s. Oh, that didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, Where we are today is the result of hundreds of years of philosophical ideas arriving on the scene and then being adapted and combined and popularised and embraced and imbibed into our lives. We might know some of the names, Rousseau, Nietzsche, Marx, Darwin, Freud, because their works have shaped philosophy and history and science. But you don't have to have read any of their books to be impacted by them because their ideas are shaping the movies you watch, the music you listen to, the books you read, the politics of our country, the technology of our science labs, the morality of our communities, the medical ethics of our hospitals. See, there's a cultural framework within which we live and move and in which we think and feel and act, and it's like the air that we breathe. It comes into us, it shapes us, we weren't even really conscious of it. And our culture uh, gives us an understanding of who we are. What is our identity in this world? And what I hope we'll see is that the assumed ideas of our culture, the ideas and philosophies below the waterline, they don't only, they don't only shape and affect people out there, whoever they happen to be, they actually shape and affect who we are in here. See, our lives are deeply uh, imprinted by the thinking and the values of our culture. We aren't immune to the influence that our world has on us. And one of the very critical ideas that our culture feeds us is who we are, our identity. Now, the, the process of identity formation is, is largely unseen, assumed, but it's very powerful. Uh, one North American preacher, Tim Keller, uh, drawing on earlier writers, he says, uh, he says, your personal identity is an answer to three questions. To what do I aspire? That, that is, what do I live for? 
everyone is living for something. Whatever is the main thing in your life, that will define you. Our second question, what am I worth? That is, what gives me self-worth? Uh, the measure of my worth comes from how well I'm achieving what it is I aspire to or live for. I'm defined by what I, I'm living for, and my self-worth comes from how well I'm achieving or honouring that. And the third, one, third question is, who gets to say? Who gets to say what your self-worth is? Who gets to evaluate you? Who gets to validate you? And Keller says that, that when you answer those three questions, then you have a personal identity. Now, every culture uh, shapes its members to form an identity in a particular way. But let's just think about it in a kind of simple way. We'll, we'll, we'll reduce it to kind of two uh, Two, two ways that identity is done. Let, let's call it the traditional identity and, and the modern identity. Uh, the traditional identity is the way that every culture used to form identity and the way that non-Western cultures still do it. Traditional identity is essentially outside to in. You start by going out and you find the highest good something outside of yourself to live for, uh, for God, for family, for truth, for your community, for your business. For, there's something out there that is important to you and you want to live for it. And after you find whatever your highest good is, you come back in and in your heart and life you, you rearrange your life and you make sacrifices necessary to align yourself with that highest good. And your self-esteem your, is the honour that your community bestows on you if you, you sacrifice your own selfish interests for that higher good. Modern identity, that's the exact opposite. It's inside out. Traditional identity is you, you go out, you find a higher good, and then you come in and you rearrange your life to, uh, to fit in. Modern identity is first, I go inside. You go in and you look at your deepest desires, your, your deepest feelings and dreams, and you decide what they are. And then you go out and you tell everyone, family, church, community, that they have to make changes. They have to adjust to accommodate to you. And you are the only validator. Your community, your, your family, they don't authenticate you. you. You're the one who says, no, I'm worth it. So, Traditional identity, you are your duties. And your self-esteem comes from the honour that your community gives you as you sacrifice your selfish interests for the greater good. Family, community, God, business, whatever it is. But modern identity, you are your desires. And your self-esteem, your dignity, you bestow it on yourself when you assert who you are against any claims that the family or church or state or God might have on you. Uh, people shaped by a traditional identity, they feel the pull of the things outside. God, family, the needs of my community, that's, that's what's real. That's more real than my inner desire. So my inner desires, they come and go, but that's the real thing out there. And I align myself with that. But people shaped by a modern identity, they don't feel the pull of anything out there. Your feelings are more real than any claim from outside. Your feelings are more real. They are the bedrock, 
that I've got to get the outer world into alignment with my inner self. Self-definition is is the culturally endorsed route to identity formation today. Uh, Today we live in a do-it-yourself self. You are the self-made self, uh, which looks only inward to find itself. And here's the words for your essay. You can write these words in there. Academics call it expressive individualism. There'll be a test on that later on. Um, Australian theologian Brian Rosner, he says there are seven major tenets that uh, expressive individualism can be summarised in. Uh, The first one, the best way to find yourself is to look inward. The highest goal in life is happiness. All moral judgments are merely expressions of feelings or personal preference. Forms of external authority are to be rejected. Uh, The world will improve dramatically as the scope of individual freedom grows. Everyone's quest for self-expression should be celebrated. Certain aspects of a person's identity, such as their gender, ethnicity or sexuality, are of paramount importance. Now, you may not, may or may not know someone who's pressing hard at number seven in that list, but I hope you can recognise in one to six ideas that are at work among your family, your friends, your classmates, your colleagues, and perhaps with a bit of inner reflection, these are ideas informing how you and I live and see ourselves. See, these aren't ideas floating around in some academic ivory tower. These are the bread and butter ideas of everyday life. This is the air that we breathe. I have uh, four daughters. Uh, They've all grown up now, left home. But I have lived through the various iterations of Disney fairy tale princess movies as they've come along every few years. Uh, 2013, one of those movies, the main character abandons the traditional self and adopts a modern self right before your eyes. Elsa in the Disney movie, Frozen, singing her famous song, Let It Go. She sings these words, don't let them in, don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal. Don't feel. Don't let them know. That is a caricature of the traditional self. Whatever is inside, hide it. Conceal it. And what you do is you bring your inner feelings into alignment with what's expected of you. Be a good girl. But in the next verse of her song, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. That's the modern self. Let it go, let it go. I I won't be tied down to the traditional identity anymore. What's inside, that's what's essential. What's outside, right, wrong, rules, no. What's inside is more real than what's outside. See, that's the world that we live in. It's just in a Disney movie. It's in all the programs you watch, the books you read. the new. This is the air, the culture that we breathe. Now, that's a snapshot of how people in our culture are forming their personal identity. 
There's way more that could be said. But anyway, let me give you three significant problems with this modern identity uh, creating the self. Uh, The first one is the modern self is incoherent. See, if you decide uh, to go inside first and decide what you want to be and who you are looking to be by, by your own inner feelings and desires... If you go look inside, you're going to find all sorts of conflicting and contradictory emotions and feelings, and they're going to change over time. You see, it's not coherent to look inside yourself to work out who you are, because one of the critical questions is, which of yourselves has the right to answer? You see, a 20-year-old you can remember back five years to 15-year-old you. And 20-year-old you will go, as a 15-year-old, as basically an idiot. Okay. And then 25-year-old you will look at 20-year-old you and go, yeah, you're basically an idiot. 35-year-old you will look back at 25-year-old you and go, oh my goodness, yeah, you were basically an idiot. You realize that we are all idiots right now to our future selves if we live long enough. You see, how can you possibly look inside and say, this is who I am, when you know that future you is going to say, no, no, that's not me at all. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't cohere. It doesn't hold together if I just look inside. Second problem of the modern self, it's extremely fragile. See, when you tell yourself, don't let anyone define you, you look inside, you decide who you want to be, don't let anyone validate you except you, how do you cope when the person you see inside isn't that nice? When you honestly recognise your own character faults and dark thoughts and evil behaviour? There can be a humiliating gap between your actual self and your desired self. And that can be crushing. If the message is look inward, are we surprised that depression and mental illness seems to be increasing? The self-made self, formed by looking only inward and and inflated by unrealistic expectations, is ill-equipped to to cope with life's struggles. You end up being crushed when disappointments come your way. I didn't turn out to be who I wanted to be. It's one of the reasons that civility is breaking down. Because to disagree with me is basically to undermine my identity. And that frequently produces a ferocious response, think social media. So it means that we, I'm so fragile, I can't cope with constructive criticism from the outside. You can't speak in and change me on the inside, so I can't cope with that. I need constant reassurance. You need to say, yes, I'm okay. The modern self is fragile because it's based completely on your performance. And who's performing in an awesome way all the time? See, there can be something very stifling about the uh, the traditional identity and traditional cultures. You know, say, uh, mother and father think I'm a good person so I can feel good about myself. 
That works sometimes. But what about if your mother and father are unreasonable people in their expectations of you? That can be difficult. That's hard. But that is easy. Easier than trying to prove to yourself and the whole world, no, 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 everything I do is great all the time. Uh, Third problem of this modern identity is it's an illusion. Uh, The modern self says, we don't let anyone out there tell us what is right or wrong for us. We we go in and we decide who we are. We are, in a sense, self-created. No, that's not what happens. Uh, Tim Keller uses a provocative illustration. Let me give it to you. Uh, Imagine a man walking down the streets of London 800 years ago. Anglo-Saxon, big, strong. And he looks inside his heart and he sees two things. One thing he sees is aggression. When people cross him, he wants to kill them. The other thing that he sees in his heart is same-sex attraction. So what is the man from 800 years ago going to do? He's going to look at the aggression and he's going to say, that's me. In a culture that prizes warriors and fighters, that's me. Same-sex attraction, he's going to say, no, I'm going to put a lid on that. Roll forward 800 years. Uh, Today a man walks down the streets, same streets of London, young man, he looks inside his heart and he sees two things. Uh, One of the things he sees is aggression. When people cross him, he wants to kill them. The other thing he sees in his heart is same-sex attraction. What is the contemporary man going to do? He's going to look at that aggression and say, I need therapy, I need anger management, that is not me. But then he looks at the same-sex attraction and says, that's me, that's who I am. No, it's not. Both of those guys are doing what their culture tells them to do. They aren't really looking inside and deciding who they are. They are taking a moral grid brought in from the outside and through that moral grid they're sifting what is them and what is not them. Where did the moral grid come from? In their culture. Oh, the outside world is telling you who you are. Everyone brings in a moral grid from outside. Everyone needs to be validated from the outside. So despite all the language of finding yourself on the inside, it can't be done honestly. The modern self doesn't work. Now, as Christian people, we shouldn't be surprised that the world's way of thinking, the world's philosophies, the world's approach to personal identity is incoherent, destructive and illusory. And at the same time, As redeemed sinners, we know that we've also been shaped by our culture's approach to personal identity. This is a problem for each of us, just as it is for our neighbours. And the path to being changed and transformed is to turn to God's word and see what the Bible teaches us about who we are. See, the Bible has the power to restore your true identity, to tell you who you really are. 
which brings us to our Bible reading from Genesis. In many ways, it's a familiar passage, but these are essential truths that tell us who we are. Genesis 1.27, So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. In the good world that God made, as the climax of creation, uh, the world that God blessed, God has made mankind in his own image. Male and female he created them. Uh, Now that may be basic Christianity, uh, but in a culture dominated by the ideas of Darwin and evolution, being created by God is fundamental to answering the question, who are you? Who am I? Adam and Eve were blessed by God, that they were tasked with being fruitful in order to populate the world and, and with ruling over the created world, overseeing it on behalf of God. You see, we have a place to be. And by design, we are male and female. We have God-given bodies, bodies that are uh, to help us multiply and bodies that will help us as guardians and keepers of the planet. We have roles to fulfill. We have a purpose to achieve. And we are related to God. Later in the Bible, Adam is called God's son. There's a sense in which, therefore, all of us are children of God. Now, there are three core strands that that, uh, come together as the Bible's answer to who I am. Uh, I work my way through a whole book by Brian Rosner, Biblical Theology of Personal Identity, and I'm giving you the one-minute version. So if it feels thin, you can read the book. Um, The first strand in a true personal identity that the Bible points to is that we are made in God's image. A second strand running throughout both the Old and the New Testaments where we read that constantly God knows us. So we think the important question is, do I know God? And there is a place for that. But the bigger and more critical question is, does God know you? Uh, When King David asks the question, who am I? Uh, He comes to the conclusion that he is known by God. Uh, Lots of places, but here's one, Psalm 8 verse 4. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? human beings that you care for them, that that God thinks about us. It's interesting when we come to the New Testament, Jesus gives words of warning in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus will say to the evildoers on the judgment day, I never knew you. See, we'd want to go, oh, they never knew Jesus. That's No, no, no. Jesus says, I never knew you. The language of being known by God evokes that picture of the the parent who who knows the infant child, even though that baby might only be dimly aware of the parent. To be known by God means that we belong to God, that, that we are chosen by God, that we are children of God. And the third strand is seen in the language of being in Christ. My identity is defined and determined by being in Christ. 
The Christian believer shares in what Jesus has done through his death and resurrection. And we are counted in Christ. And we are new people with a new identity in Christ. The Bible uses the language of adoption to describe one aspect of being in Christ. When someone becomes a Christian, they are adopted into God's family. Apostle Paul puts it uh, this way for the Galatians. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. I do see that this adoption through Christ changes our identity. We are those who have received God's spirit. We are new. And in a fresh way, in a new way, not just everyone is a child of God, but we've been especially adopted. We are his children by adoption. We are, again, children of God. So three strands running through the Bible. We are made in the image of God. We are known by God. And we are in Christ. And, and each of those strands finds this central uh, core around our identity as being a child of God. Uh, one of the great problems of seeing personal identity as a do-it-yourself kind of project is that attempting to define yourself ignores the fact that we are social creatures. We are largely uh, defined by our relationships. We come to know ourselves in being known by others. Uh, back in 1990, age 20, uh, Christopher Knight parked his car on a remote trail, walked away with only the basics, most basic supplies... Uh, He had no plan. Uh, His chief motivation was to avoid contact with people. He emerged from his solitude in 2017. 27 years later, uh, he ended up being arrested for stealing food from cabins. As far as the rest of the world was concerned, when Christopher Knight uh, formed his tribe of one, he ceased to exist. Uh, What is perhaps surprising is that according to his own words, he himself also ceased to exist. Uh, in an interview about his kind of decades-long solitary uh, existence, he mused, it's, it's complicated. Solitude bestows an increase in something valuable. I can't dismiss that idea. Solitude increased my perception. But here's the tricky thing. When I applied my increased perception to myself, I lost my identity. There was no audience, no one to perform for. There was no need to define myself. I became irrelevant. You see, being known by others is essential for knowing who you are. Even the need for having a self is to relate to other people. So you can't work out your identity by yourself. If who you are is worked out through a relationship, through the input of someone else, surely the one you would want to turn to first is the God who made you in his image. 
the God who knows you, the God who saves and adopts you through Christ. If you want to know who you really are, the answer is not deep down in your heart. The answer is not out there in the world. If you want to know who you really are, the God who is there, the God who reveals himself in the Bible, the God who has shown his love for you in Christ, he is the one to turn to for the answers. In in some ways, the traditional way of forming your identity and the modern way of forming your identity are very similar. Neither of them is the Christian way. Uh, both the traditional self and the modern self, they look to look, look for validation on earth. The traditional self, oh, it's the community, your family, they're going to say you're a good person. Uh, the modern self, you, you're going to look inside and say, yes, I'm a good person. The Christian identity is not traditional, it's not modern, it's unique. The Apostle Paul says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That, that is... God treated Jesus sinful on our behalf. Which means that when I believe or you believe, we are treated as righteous. Our identity before God is right. He is treated as I deserve and I'm treated as he deserves. God sees me in Christ and I'm united with him. And in that sense, All my flaws are hidden in Christ. And when God sees me, he sees something good. And that means that that God is my ultimate validator. He's the one who says, yes, you are good. And his love is unconditional. Because it doesn't depend on my performance. It depends on what Christ has already accomplished, done and finished. That doesn't change. And so God's love And affirmation doesn't change. That's a personal identity that is unique and freeing and very different from what our world is telling us. We're going to think more over the coming weeks and you'll have questions and by all means, let's have conversations and I'll try to help us along and you'll help me along as well. Let's pray together. Father, we want to give you thanks and praise that in the Lord Jesus we have a new identity. We are new people, a fresh start. You change us from the inside out. You change our desires and our aspirations. You affirm us objectively through the work of Christ. Help us to know and live that identity for Jesus' sake. Amen.